Well, I want to, um, as y'all are flipping there, just kind of give you a little reminder of what we're talking about, a little review. We said the first night we talked about our need for sanctification, our need to change, our need to grow. And we said that we're, we're all thirsty, and the trick is that we have to admit it, see what Jesus has done, and then take and drink in the gospel. Last night we talked about the threat. The biggest threat to your sanctification is basically that your good, your good behavior can fool you into thinking that you don't need Jesus. This is why I was really impressed with what Scott said when he was down in the room, when he said, uh, you know, you saw my anger spill out. And now you see that I need Jesus too. And that's actually a sign of maturity. Uh, we, the Christians, we get this mindset where we think the more mature we become, the less we actually need Jesus. And it's the exact opposite. It's the more mature we grow, the more that we know that we need Jesus and we're freer to admit that we do. So tonight we're going to look at what is the everyday pattern, the day in and day out pattern of what sanctification looks like. What does it look like in your life and in my life? Well, I'm going to read this passage, famous story out of Luke chapter 15, and then we'll discuss it briefly together. How's that sound? Awesome. Oh, God. <laughs> nice. Okay, Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 11. It says this, Jesus continued. Jesus is telling a story, and he goes on, and he says, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his field to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. And so he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again, and he was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son, was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. And so he called one of his servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. And so his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, 
All these, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours, but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is God's word for us tonight. If you would, let's pray together and then we'll look at it. Okay? Let me pray. Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you for this day, for this moment, for this time to be together. And we would ask that you would send your spirit now to comfort the afflicted, but also to afflict the comfortable. Would you do that in our midst in these next few moments? And we would pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before my wife and I lived in Boone, we lived in Charlotte for three years. And we lived in a a neighborhood in Charlotte, a part of Charlotte, uh, that was very poor, very dangerous, very run down. And so it was not... Uh, an uncommon thing for us to hear gunshots in the neighborhood and then call the police and report it. And one particular night, we're sitting in our living room, which is towards the front of the house. It was like our living room, window, and then street, you know, front yard. And we're watching TV, and all of a sudden we hear this boom go off, big gunshot. And we hear this woman crying, screaming, oh! And it sounds like it's in our front yard. So I run and I grab my cell phone and I'm calling the police. And meanwhile, my wife is, you know, looking through the blinds to figure out what's going on. And I'm, I'm on the phone with the police. I'm saying, someone just got shot. They're, they're, they're in our front yard. I, I hear them screaming, boom, boom, more shots going off right outside of our front. And I'm saying, you got to get here. You got to get here now. You got to get here right now. My wife is all the while looking at me doing this. I'm like, what? What? She says, they're, they're fireworks. People are, people are in the front lighting up fireworks. <laughs> It had actually been the night that the president was just um, inaugurated or, or, or um, declared, you know, voted into office. And so people on the street were celebrating. And, and the screaming were, you know, cries of joy, I guess. So I, I mistook it for cry, cries of gun, gunshot pain. But what it took, it took my wife to come to me and to change the way that I understood what was actually happening. I was looking at the world a certain way. And I was misunderstanding it. And it took my wife to come to me and explain, no, this is not actually what's happening. Jesus in this story is going to do the exact same thing. He is going to radically change the way that you see two things. And these are the two things I want to talk about in our brief time tonight. He radically changes the way that we think about what it means to run from God and then to come to God. He says, you think you understand what those two things mean and you don't. Let me redefine them for you. So I just want to walk through these two things really briefly. What does it mean to run from God, and what does it mean to run to God? So first, what does it mean to run from God? Well, the story, very famous story, involves a father and his two sons. And the two sons, there's an older one and there's a younger one, and both of them view their father as if their father is a mean boss. Now, when I was in high school... I worked for a mean boss. I was a telemarketer. 
I don't, I don't, I don't know. Do y'all, do y'all still get phone calls from telemarketers? No, nobody in my family ever chewed you out. No, no, I, I probably got chewed out by some of your family members. But I was the guy that would call your, call your family at dinner time and annoy them, and they'd hang up in my face, and I would try to sell them stuff. But I worked in a little cubicle, all these different little cubicles. We all had the little headsets. And we had this boss who was, uh, was an older man, probably in his 50s or so. He smoked like a chimney. He would uh, constantly make girls cry in the staff meet, you know, the staff meetings because he was so mean. He, he would walk by our you know, cubicles and he'd whisper these like, dirty jokes in our ears and you're just like, he was just a crude, it was just a bad situation. But let me ask you this. What would motivate anyone to stay in that sort of work environment? Money. The bling, the cheese, right? I was getting paid $10 an hour as a telemarketer. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. Here's my point. I was willing to stick around that terrible situation because he had what I wanted. He had my paycheck. Now, this younger son goes to the father and he says, look, I want my share of your inheritance, of my inheritance. You know, like when your parents um, write you into the will and say, hey, you're going to get this certain amount of money or stuff after I'm dead, and then it's going to be yours. You're going to inherit it after I pass. But this younger son said, look, I want it now, which basically means you're as good as dead to me, and I just want your stuff. And the father sells off part of his land, gives the younger son this money, And now that the the younger son has what he wants out of this relationship, there's no more reason for him to stay in it, right? And so he pieces out, and he goes to a faraway country and spends all this money on women and alcohol, and he's partying, he's living up, he's living the lifestyle. But there's a younger son. There's an older son as well. And if you look in verse um, 29, look at the older son. Look what he says. He comes to the father later in the story. And he says, look, Dad, you never threw me a party. You never gave me what I wanted. I've been slaving for you. I've been doing all the right stuff. And you never gave me anything. What is it that the older son wants as well? The money. The stuff. The money. The older son and the younger son both want the father's stuff. They don't want the father. But if you notice, they've chosen two radically different strategies in order to get it. One is breaking all the rules. One is keeping all the rules. Neither one of them want the Father. They just want his stuff. Here's what we learn. Here's what Jesus is teaching us. There are two ways to run from God. One is to be really bad. One is to be really good. Did you just hear what I said? There are two ways to run from God. One is to be really bad, break all the rules... Wants to be really good and keep all the rules. Because what we learn here is that running from God is deeper than just being bad, breaking rules. Running from God means that you are saying to God and you're living your life as if you are your own savior. I don't need God. I just want his stuff. Now think about this. Uh, Let's just do a little thought experiment if we can. Let's say that you um, come into a billion dollars. Let's say uh, you didn't realize this, but your grandparents were like secret oil tycoons. And you just came into a billion dollars. 
Is that would be a good day for you. Let's let's just say that it's a good day. And let's say um, a little bit later, as you know, after you have this money, uh, you also happen to fall in love with uh, the person of your dreams. They they are great, and you end up getting married. This illustration doesn't quite work because some of you are twelve. But let's just say, let's just say, this happens later in life, and you get married. And you have a billion dollars, and let's say for the first year of marriage, it's great. You've got a nice house, living the dream. But let's say the second year of marriage gets really rocky, really rough. And y'all are fighting all the time. And it just the, the, the relationship eventually starts to get so tense, so hard, that your spouse is about to walk out the door and leave you forever. And right before they walk out the door and slam the door in your face, they turn to you and say, look, I want you to know something. I never loved you. I just got into this relationship for your money. And when I realized I couldn't get my hands on that money, there's no point in staying in this relationship. Slam the door, leave. How would you feel? Brokenhearted? Mad? Sad? Whatevs? Wouldn't care? You would feel you would feel used and you would feel upset. Do you realize that this is probably how God feels every single day? Because theoretically, God has this treasure chest of blessing. This treasure chest that he can make your life happy. He can give you a peace that transcends all understanding. He can answer all your prayers. He can do good things for you. He can hook you up and get you married to someone really cute, really cool. And when you don't get your hands on that treasure chest, and you get angry at him and say, look, God, I've done all the right things. I've gone to church. I've, I've gone to these youth group retreats. I've read my Bible. I've prayed. I want the stuff. Don't you realize what you're doing? You are running from him. You're using him. Just like the older son in the story. You're saying, I don't want you. I just want all this stuff that you can get me. And if you don't give it to me, then what's the point in having you? There's two ways to run from God. One is very obvious. It's breaking all the rules. Of course, you want nothing to do with God. Everyone knows it and you know it. But the other way that's kind of tricky is by being really good. Keeping all the rules. We talked about this a lot last night, so I'm going to move on. That's the first thing that we have to see is that there's two ways to run from God. Being really bad, being really good. So, secondly, what does it look like? How does Jesus change the way that we think about Coming back to God, running to God. Well, look back at the story. If God is not what we want, but rather has what we want, in other words, if he has the happiness, the blessing, the, the good life for us, if he has that for us, then think about this. What does that mean for your relationship with him when you sin, when you screw up, when you fail him, when you blow it in some big way? What does that mean? Well, that means that you, uh, you getting what you wanted out of this relationship is now jeopardized, right? I mean, think about it, my situation with my boss. He's got the paycheck. I'm staying in this miserable relationship because I want to get paid. But let's say I mess up big time. Well, what do I need to do? I need to make things right with this boss. I need to renegotiate my contract. And that's exactly what this younger son does. Remember, he's gone, he's spent all this money, he's been living it up, and he blows all of his money. He's hit rock bottom, he's sleeping and eating with pigs. 
So he's kind of, I mean, he's about as rock bottom as you can get. And look at what happens. Look at verse 17. It says this. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? Now, it looks as if the younger brother is saying, Oh, I've been such a mess. I need to go back with my father, get reconnected with him. If that's what you're thinking, that he's repenting, that he's turning, you'd be wrong. Because if you notice what he's saying, he's not experiencing the father's love and the grace yet. He's still relating to his father as if the father is this mean boss. Because he's plotting and scheming on how he can go back and get food. Remember? Okay, so let's look at the very next verse. Verse 18, he says this. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. He's, he's, he's rehearsing what he's about to say. He's scheming and thinking, okay, when I go back to my father, I'm going to basically just say to him, oh, I'm so guilty, I'm a worm, I'm terrible, I've really screwed up. He's going to grovel before his father and, and hopes to kind of butter the father up, right? Let's keep going. Uh, verse 19, he says, that he's, he's in the middle of rehearsing his speech and he's going to say, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. You know, he's, he's beating himself up and saying, I'm, I'm, I'm unworthy. can't believe I did it again. I totally screwed up. Guilt, 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 guilt. And then the key is what he says next in verse 19. He says this. Make me like one of your hired men. He says, don't, don't make me a son. I'm, I'm unworthy to be your son. Give me a job in the lower ranks. Hire me and I will pay off all the money that I've blown. I mean, think about that. Let's say your parents loan you, assuming that they have it, thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. Yeah, right. That would be nice, wouldn't it? But let's say in one week, you blew it all. Oh. You, you bought video games and then you broke them. You, you bought a car and you smashed it. Uh, you have nothing to show for it. And you come back to them and say, hey, I'm essentially... $300,000 in debt to you, but give me a job and I'll just work to pay it off. I mean, he's crazy. This is going to take him the rest of his life to pay this off. But here's, here's what I want you to notice. We do this all the time. When we come before God, when you sin, when you blow it, the question is, what do you do in those situations? What do you do when you've let God down, you've let your friends down, what do you do when you've blown it? Well, my guess is um, a lot of you respond by saying this to yourself, oh, I'm a bad Christian, I'm terrible, I should have known better, and you just heap on the guilt. Now, why are you doing that? Why are you heaping on the guilt and beating yourself up? Because you are trying to pay for your sin yourself. You're saying, okay, if I feel bad enough long enough, then I will have sufficiently paid off my debt. Or, or have you ever done this? Let's say you, you, you sin in some way, you, you, you mess up, and you say, I can't just come to God and pray right now. I've got to allow a, a, at least a week to go by before I can pray to him, before I can pick up the Bible again. I can't just, just come right into his presence. That's, way too, that's too cheap. I've got, to, I've got to pay it off. I've got to allow some time to go by. And then when we do come in front of God's presence after a week or however long, then we start making these big, enormous resolutions. 
and we say to you know we, we start promising God we're going to turn into spiritual Superman or Superwoman, and we're going to say, okay, I'm going to start reading my Bible every single day. I'm, I'm going to really start going to church. I'm going to really start getting involved. We start making these big promises to God that we will pay it off. We'll make it up to you. I'll make it up to you. My dad is really into weird television shows. Maybe you like these shows. I think they're weird. One of the shows that he's really into, if you like the show, don't throw Bibles at me, Dancing with the Stars. You you may like this, but if you're a seven-year-old man to be into this show, it's a little bizarre. He's also into um, the show My Name is Earl. Do y'all remember that? Do y'all ever watch that? He's made me sit sit through a couple of these episodes, so I'm familiar enough with sort of the basic idea. But if you're unfamiliar, the basic idea of this show is that there's this criminal, kind of a petty, low-life criminal named Earl. And he uh, has wronged all of these people his whole life. And he gets in like a car accident or something. Yeah. He gets in a car accident, breaks his neck. And when he's in the hospital, he kind of has this, uh, this moment where he's like, okay, I, um, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to live every single day, and every day I'm going to do something good to the people that I've wronged. And so he creates this big list, and he, the rest of his life he works through this list to say, I'm going to pay off all these things that I've done wrong with my good deeds. In other words, if you hear what he's saying, he's saying this. I do not need a savior. I will save myself. Did you hear what he's I mean, do you hear what he's saying? I will pay for all the bad things I've done on my own. I'll pay it back by doing good. I'll pay it back by doing this. And when we come before God and and we say, I'm going to feel bad about this as long as I can. I'm going to make more resolutions, more uh, decisions to do this and this and this for you. As a way of paying it off for him, we are basically saying to God, I don't need Jesus. I'll save myself. Do you see that? And Jesus is saying, this is not Christianity. This is not Christianity. For some of you, this has been your experience with Christianity. You mess up. You think that God wants you to feel miserable over it and then make these huge promises that you can never live up to. Of course, you fail those and you feel miserable. And then you you make more promises and you fail those and you feel more miserable. And that's what Christianity is for you. But the good news of this passage is that's not what Christianity is. Because Jesus redefines what it means to come back home. Okay, look at how the rest of the story goes. This younger son is heading back home. Now remember, he's just blown lots of money. And he's probably covered in filth because, remember, he's been you know, laying around with pigs. Now in this particular culture... It would not have been a weird thing for if, if this son were to come into this village, all of the village would have known that this kid would, would, was have, had made a public disgrace of his family. And it would have not been a weird thing for a mob to form as this kid's coming into town to kill him. If not kill him, at least taunt him and throw stuff at him and say, you're such an idiot, you're such a loser, I can't believe you. How could you disgrace your family throwing stuff at him? And this kid would have just to shamefully walk all the way back to his home. What does the father do? I want you to look at verse 20. It says this, But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him, and he ran to his son. He ran to him. Now, at this time, 
culturally, men and women wore these long sort of gown tunic things. They didn't wear shorts. And which, by the way, if you, whenever you see, you never see important people running anywhere. I mean, you never see, you know, the president frantically running anywhere. He's calm and he's cool and all of his little peons beneath him are running around and making the copies and getting the coffee for him. Right, you never saw Steve Jobs panicked and running around. But here is this, well maybe that's true, not true. But here is this dignified, important man running. And to run with these tunic things, you would have had to have hoisted them up and exposed your bleached white thighs, if it, if it were me in the story, and run to his, fa- to his kid. What is he doing? He is making a fool of himself. He is, he is deflecting the shame away from his boy and taking it on, him up, on his own. He's acting as a substitute. He is saying, I'm going to run and I'm going to get to my son before this crowd does, and if they want to shame someone, they can shame me. But more importantly, all he wants is his boy back in his arms. And he throws his arms around this kid and he's kissing him. Remember, he's covered in filth. He's kissing him and saying, okay, we're going to have a party. Let's bring out the steaks, bring out the buffet. He puts a ring on him. He puts a robe on him. And he reinstates him, not as a, not as a servant, but as a son. And if, you, and if you caught it, the son starts trying to rehearse the little speech, the little repentance speech that he had gone through of, oh, Father, I'm, I'm not that great. And the father doesn't even let him finish. He cuts him off and just throws him on and says, let's get the party started. Like, Forget all that. Let's go. I'm just glad you're here. What do we see? Coming to God is coming to God filthy and him running and rushing and throwing his arms around you. And this is a picture of what the gospel is. The Father running to you. I mean, this is what Christmas is all about, right? I mean, you think about Christmas, this is God leaving heaven and coming for you, running after you. And of course, Jesus on the cross is bearing the shame. He's bearing all the ridicule that you and I deserve. So he can deflect it from you and receive it on himself. And then what does he do with you? Is he, he puts the ring on you and he wraps his robe around you and he reinstates you as sons and daughters in his kingdom. This is what it means to come back to God. But here's the key. The way that we come to God, maybe for the first time for some of you, maybe for the 500th time for some of you, but the way that we come to him is that we just come to him We don't grovel. We don't uh, make New Year's resolutions to him. We don't try to butter him up by throwing as much guilt as we can on ourselves. We come to him messy, had made a mess of stuff, broken rules, done bad things. We come before him and he receives us. And so here's the um, quote I want to leave you with. Mumford and Sons, again, you know the band. I think, I, I think this was the same song that I quoted uh, a couple nights ago. In the song, Roll Away Your Stone, here's what they say. It's not the long walk home that will change this heart, but the welcome I receive with a restart. The long walk home, shame, guilt, New Year's resolutions, I'll try harder, I'll do better, that will not change you. It is the welcome that you receive 
the Father throwing his arms around you, that's what begins to melt your heart and change you from the inside out like we talked talked about last night. Coming to God simply means that, coming home. So I want to encourage you to do this before we close. Sometime today, before the night is over, before you go to bed tonight, I want you to spend some time with God just by yourself. Maybe in your bed before you go to sleep. Maybe when you get home. Maybe if you're still here. And I just want you to come before him and bring something to him. And you have the freedom to be raw and the freedom to be honest and say, I have done this. I have thought this. I have have not done this thing that I should have. And I want you to trust that if you have faith in Jesus, it is dealt with and it's covered. And the Father just wants to throw his arms around you and be with you. And when you begin to experience that sort of reception, that when you come to him that raw, that broken, that ugly, he doesn't shame you, he doesn't mock you, he doesn't sit there with his arms folded and his foot tapping and say, oh, where have you been? It's been quite a while since you've come into my presence. He throws his arms around you. So I want to encourage you to do that. And I want you to remember this in the back of your mind as you do it. That we have a great need for a Savior. And we have a great Savior for our need. Let me pray. Father, we do ask that you would give us much grace as we try to come before you as we really are. Not dressed up in our righteousness. Not groveling. Not making promises that we know we're not going to keep. But coming before you uh, with all of our, all the ugly things in us, all the broken things in us, all the shameful things in us, and knowing that you love us anyway. And throw your arms around us and receive us purely because you love us and because of Jesus. And we pray all this in his name. Amen.